0: Chapter 22 of Order Number 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Order Number 11 by Carolyn Abbott Stanley. Chapter 22 Border Warfare Begins. One September morning, three months after that farewell under the honeysuckle james h lane with his kansas troops crossed the border into missouri two weeks later that body of cavalry in their beautiful suits of blue rode proudly back into kansas city the flag at their head the flag men were dying for elsewhere and in their rear the spoils of war they had struck a blow for the union the little town of osceola was in ashes a score of her citizens who had dared resist the looting of their homes lay dead or dying the contents of the wagons told the rest everything disloyal said general lane must be cleaned out and remarks his biographer never were orders more literally or cheerfully obeyed Indeed, if we may believe the record, the disloyalty most feared by this worthy brigade was that which lurked in feather beds and silver plate. They must rid the land of that first and foremost. What do you think of this, sir? demanded Colonel Trevelyan of Dr. Lay when the news of that raid reached Grand Prairie. It is damnable, sir. Damnable. Mrs. Lay started in all her life she had never heard her husband come so near swearing the doctor's indignation was so deep and his chagrin so evident that colonel Trevelyan really said less than he had intended to say he could not help remarking however that he understood lane's own particular share of the spoils to have been a fine carriage it is true sir returned the doctor i have it from good authority I hunted that story down when I was in Kansas City yesterday. That man, sir, is a disgrace to the flag he follows. He wrote a letter that night to Governor Robinson of Kansas, whom he had met several times at the Gillis House, protesting in the name of the Union men of the border against such outrageous. They will force men into the Confederate Army. They have already done so to this letter governor robinson replied that weeks ago he had written general fremont commander of the western department urging that lane's brigade be removed from the border i have told him he wrote that what we have to fear and do fear is that lane's brigade will get up a war by going over the line committing depredations and then returning to our state dr Lay took this letter over to mr whalen and after some consultation they decided to write a letter of protest from jackson county themselves the letter was barely gone when still more alarming intelligence reached them osceola was several counties removed the new danger was near at hand at that time there were no railroads in western missouri And the transportation of supplies became a question of some importance. About two hundred prairie schooners and five or six hundred oxen were collected at Kansas City to be sent to Jefferson City and Rolla as terminal points. General Lane's Kansas troops were to escort them. If the people along the route had heard that the escort was to be the devil's own, they would not have felt more consternation. They were wild with fear. Anything would be better than to risk such a visitation. Without realizing that they were promising what they could by no possibility be sure of fulfilling, some misguided ones pledged the government authorities that if only the escort were not sent, the train should be unmolested. The wagons started in two sections, 24 hours apart. They camped in neighboring towns, And in one ill-fated night, were set upon. The wagons burned, and the cattle stampeded. It was probably the initial work of Quantrell's guerrillas, but the penalty fell upon the innocent, not the guilty. It was made the pretext for Jennison's first raid. Jennison, the scourge of the border, the man who fought with lasso and torch, the scavenger whose grappling hook took hold of all that was worth having. And never let go. From that day, the people of the hapless section ate the bread of adversity and drank the water of affliction. A nation has come up upon my land, lamented the Hebrew prophet, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig trees a fire devoureth before them and behind them a flame burneth the land is as the garden of eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness he might have said it of the border the sabbath that followed will not be forgotten by this generation nor the next in that vicinity it is called jenison's day yet the prophet joel certainly had that devoted land in mind tell your children of it he says and let your children tell their children and their children another generation that which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten and that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten the pious Palmers came in Lane's footpad brigade. A swarm of locusts lighted when Jennison and his jayhawkers swept down upon the land. The noisome cankerworm, with mandibles multiplied, crept after them in the redlegs. When they got through, there was nothing left for the caterpillar. Grand Prairie's day came later. Through that fall and winter they waited and trembled. A counter force was gathering in the woods around them. Seven or eight desperate men had met on Little Blue and chosen a leader. That leader was Quantrell, a name rivaling Jenison's for grim work from the first and surpassing it when the last stroke fell. They were not all outlaws in the beginning. Most of them went in with a wound that rankled. Some of them had seen the accumulation of a lifetime go up in smoke while their families were thrust out upon the pitiless prairies. Others had followed bloodied stock to the Kansas border and gone back to take up their guns. One had seen a father's gray hairs dabbled in blood. Another mourned a son. Many there were who went because they could not stay in safety at home. Every raid of Jennison sent recruits to Quantrell. It was safer to be in the brush than at home, and they would have revenge at any rate. The clans were gathering all along the snye, the stream abounding in fastnesses and skirted by almost inaccessible precipices. It was a good spot for a lurking foe. It is historic yet the hold-ups which have given rise to the worn joke gentlemen we are now entering missouri secrete your valuables have many of them had their origins in this very cracker neck and some of the men who planned them are survivors of that band on grand prairie they held their breath they knew that when the shock came it would be terrific and they were in the storm center Beverly was with Price in southwest Missouri, making bullets from Granby lead and improvising cartridges. He was a lieutenant now and had sewed a bit of red flannel on his shoulder to show it, straps not being at hand. He and Gordon had fought against each other at Lexington, but neither knew it. Gordon was shut up with beleaguered Mulligan, and Beverly fought behind the hemp breastworks. That won the day ike swamscott stood beside him they were all busy sewing one day at Caswick in the early spring of eighteen sixty two mrs trevelyan was finishing off a suave jacket for virginia made from one of her father's black broadcloth coats turned it was to go with a garibaldi waist of magenta delane which had once been white but was now the fashionable war-color by virtue of a bath in Cudbear. Cudbear was an aniline dye, which had the double merit of being bright and cheap. Everything was colored with Cudbear during the war, from bonnet ribbons to carpet rags. There are some persons who have an unconquerable aversion to Cerise and all kindred shades they are usually persons with good memories the color brings up the instant suspicion no matter how fine the article that it has been dyed the garibaldi waist and the zouave jacket were a part of virginia's outfit for a visit to matt delano it was to be worn with a black silk skirt of miss nanny's flounced to the waist Virginia was trying on a pair of side-laced, draped-a-tay gaiters that Uncle Reuben had just sold for her. She had got the pattern from Liddy Merriweather, and it had gone all over the neighborhood. Dry goods and shoes were getting frightfully dear, but one couldn't go barefoot. People hardly knew how they would have got along without the providential rise of that fashion in gaiters. Sometimes they were made of scraps of cloth, but draped to tay was the approved material. Somehow the foreign name took off the homemade curse. It is all ready to put on," said Missus trevelyan looking at the jacket admiringly. "What do you think of it, Nan? It is very pretty indeed," returned Miss Nanny, especially to have been made out of rags and gumption. There was a loud knock at the front door just then and mrs Trevelyan opened it two armed soldiers stood outside madam said one respectfully we are belated and would like to stay all night if we can certainly said mrs Trevelyan, no belated traveller had ever been turned from that door no matter what was the colour of his coat if he had been a friend and a Virginian instead of a foe and a Kansan, he could not have received more courteous treatment. He and his companion were entertained until bedtime and then put into the guest chamber, being invited in the meantime to remain to family prayers. At breakfast, they were served with hot waffles, which they liked, being rather surfeited with hardtack. When they were starting away, the leader beckoned Mrs. Trevelyan into the hall. "Madam," he said, "you have treated me as a gentleman. I will prove to you that I am one. Jennison is coming through here tomorrow. If you have anything of value, hide it, and lie like the devil." End of Chapter Twenty-Two. Recording by John Brandon.